So today we're going to finish up this series called Jesus Tweets. Over the last few weeks, what we've been doing is looking at these short sayings of Jesus that pack lots of information and instruction for us into just a few words. In fact, into few enough words that they could be tweeted. 140 characters or less written down for us to understand. The truth is, we're not finishing this series of messages because there's not any more material. We could go on for weeks with controversial statements, challenging statements, convicting statements. That's not why we're stopping. We're stopping because it's time to move on to something else. But Jesus was a master of this. Today, we're going to talk about what is perhaps the most famous Jesus tweet of all. I was thinking about this yesterday because uh, uh, the boys and I went on a little excursion yesterday morning. Susan and the girls were going to a baby shower. And for some reason, Eli and Luke chose to sit that one out. And so we were looking for something to do. And there was this sports fest happening downtown. And so uh, I talked to the boys and if they wore jerseys, they got in free. And so it cost us $5 total to go. Well, when you have a family of six, anything that costs $5 total, we're in. All right. Right. And so we we go down there and it's a typical kind of event thing. They've got some speakers over there speaking. The head coach of Tennessee basketball was speaking. They had a wiffle ball field set up and the kids could get in there and swing and hit wiffle ball. They had tennis stuff set up. You could play tennis. You could play. They had some kind of tournament of rollerblade hockey going on. It was all this event. And we were there for about an hour and a half. And, and after an hour and a half, the boys had played every game event. They had putt-putted and uh, shot basketball and ring-tossed and cornholed and all that they could do and won all the promotional stuff that we will never use in our lives. You know, every booth gives you something. We got all that and it was time to go. And so I was loading up the boys to go. It was about noon. They were all um, hungry and I didn't want to buy food there because like a hamburger was like uh, $412 or something, you know. For like a little bitty. And so I was like, let's go. We'll go find something good to eat. Let's all get ready to leave. And as we're leaving, I see a camera being set up. Well, there hadn't been any cameras there for anything else. And the Tennessee basketball head coach had spoken. Some uh, former NBA players had spoken. Some current college coaches had spoken. Uh, NFL, former NFL players. There weren't any cameras set up. And so I thought, what in the world are they setting cameras up for? And then I remembered who was supposed to be there at one o'clock. It was in a panel discussion about the new SEC network. And one of the guests was a guy named Tim Tebow. Ooh, some of you are like, where was I yesterday? Well, wasn't I? How many of you know who Tim Tebow is? All right. How many of you are Tebow fans? You're like, I'm in a church. Do I have to raise my hand? No. You know, and I like Tim Tebow. I like him as a person. I know his youth minister from when he was growing up. And from all I know, he's a genuine person, good person. But it was interesting because he, he has been out of football now for a couple of years. And he hadn't been good in football for longer than that. All right. And so, but there's still this interest about him. I thought back because of what we're talking about today to the story of his last great moment. Some of you remember this. Uh, he was the starting quarterback for the Denver Broncos when they were in the playoff game against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And in that game, 
It was a, a close game throughout, not much happening. But towards the end, Tebow started playing pretty well, and they got to overtime. And as overtime started, the first play of overtime was a slant pattern to Demarius Thomas, his receiver, and Tebow hit him perfectly. Best ball he'd thrown all day. Demarius Thompson called it, and on the first play of overtime goes the distance. Touchdown. Broncos win the game. It's over. Tim Tebow's the greatest quarterback to ever play in the NFL at that particular moment on that Sunday at that time. Talk shows go all around. Well, the next day, somebody noticed some interesting things about the stats from that game. For instance, Tebow threw for 316 yards. His average completion was 31.6 yards. The ratings for the last 15 minutes of the game was a 31.6. Now, for a lot of people, it's just coincidence is not a big deal. When the truth is, it's, there's still some coincidental nature to it. But why did that matter for Tebow? Because two years earlier in the national championship game, he had worn eye black. And on his eye black, he had written John 3.16. Now, what's interesting about that game is uh, the most searched phrase during those hours of the championship game were John 3.16. Ninety million people searched it. People started freaking out. In fact, I read this this morning, a quote. I looked back up to make sure I was right on some of those statistics. One, one NFL executive said, if all those numbers are true, I might just convert. To which I am writing him a letter. I don't know who it is, but we'll write one, right? Now, why do people get so excited about the numbers 316? Because John 316 is perhaps the most quoted, known Verse of Scripture in the entire Bible. Why do people, why do you, you help me out here. Why do people like John 3.16 so much? It talks about God's love. Thank you, Bill. Gospel in one verse, right? Jeannie, what were you saying? Gave his life, the gift that is there. Here's what I find interesting is you can boil down the gospel, the wholeness of the Christian faith. Now, obviously, it's, it's bigger than this, but the essence of the message can be found in those few words. Twenty five words to be exact or one hundred and twenty five characters, which means you can tweet the entire verse. Without any additions or deletions or. Making Y-O-U-R into U-R or any of that. It fits. What I find interesting is, as we've looked through this, these uh, scripture passages over the last few weeks, we find that the, the wisdom of the short statement, like the 140 characters, came along long before Twitter. And that Jesus was a master of it. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3. You may not need it because you know it. And my guess is a lot of you... No, John chapter 3, verse 16, but just you can open there and have it kind of available for you because I want to remind you quickly about the story that comes before it. And here's the verse. And, and like I said, you, many of you don't need it. Many of you could quote it without any kind of help. 
But John chapter 3 is a story of Jesus and a guy named Nicodemus. Now, somebody tell me who Nicodemus is. That's good. Somebody else. He's a Pharisee, right? What were the Pharisees? Who were they? What were their job? Well, they were the kind of the spiritual advisors for a nation, the, the spiritual experts. They sat around all day and discussed spiritual matters. They had discussions, debates about what the Torah, what the law, what the prophets, what all that meant for the people of their day. They would sit around and make decisions on how many steps constituted work, what carrying certain items would be work on the Sabbath or not. They talked about what mixed fibers were and how that could incorporate itself into fabrics and into clothing. They talked about the food and dietary laws. And if someone brought a new food from a different land, they had to decide, is this okay? Is it clean? Is this acceptable before the Lord? They they had all of these decisions to sit around and debate. And most of their day was spent debating spiritual topics or interviewing people with spiritual teaching. And on this particular occasion... Nicodemus is probably doing his own research about this new guy that's popped up on the scene. And my guess is the discussions among the Pharisees were growing in intensity about this teacher from Nazareth. I mean, somebody said he healed somebody the other day. Well, he couldn't heal anybody unless he was from God or from the other. Well, what do you think? Well, I've heard some of his teaching. Well, what do you think about that? Well, some of it's good. But the other day he said he could forgive sins and nobody can forgive sins and said God. And so we know he can't be from God if he's claiming to be God because there's only one God and he can't be God because he's not God. But I don't I, there's just something about him that's different. I, I just I, when he talks, I, I, I get this this understanding that I've never had before. He teaches differently than anybody I've ever heard. Well, don't let him fool you with his slick words. Debate is raging. I like to envision it kind of like crossfire on CNN. Or if Fox News and MSNBC decided to converge into one thing. Right? And Nicodemus thinks, i got to figure this out. So that tells us at the beginning of chapter three, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He wasn't just kind of a low level Pharisee. And a man came to him at night to Jesus. So he finds a way to get to Jesus. He thinks he's going to do his own personal investigation. He's doing it at night so the others may not know about it. And he comes to Jesus and he says to him, and whether this is flattery or genuine, either way, he sets the mood by saying, we know you come from God. No one could perform these signs unless God were with him. Now, now here's my personal feeling about that. Nicodemus was genuine. He was sincere. He wanted to know. So he says to him, I know you're good. The, The debate is raging. I know you're good because no one could do what you have done except they be from God. And Jesus answers in a really strange way. Now, some of us are better at handling compliments than others. Some of us, when somebody gives us a compliment, we mean to say, thank you. I appreciate that. It means so much. Some people try to deflect with sarcasm and humor and, oh, and tries to bring back a couple. No, no, you're the one that, you know, you're great. Jesus looks at him after Nicodemus says, we know you're from God and says, unless you're born again, you can't be a part of my kingdom. Now, now. 
We know that phrase. We've been around church. We know what born again means. He's talking about spiritual stuff. He's talking about being saved. He's talking about maybe you don't know what it is, but in church, it's born again. We don't use it much anymore, but it means saved. It means spiritual change. But imagine being Nicodemus, and the first time you hear this, you're sitting across from the guy, and you say, man, you're a great teacher. We know you're from God. And he says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, I don't know what you mean. Like, how is that even possible, Jesus? I can imagine that there are people that think that the disciples may have been around with Jesus because they were kind of always around with Jesus. And you can imagine kind of looking around and Nicodemus looking for help from the disciples and the disciples going, this happens to us like every day. I don't have a clue. In fact, Nicodemus says, I'm old, Jesus. I can't be born again. I mean, and they talks biologically. I can't go back into my mother's womb. Jesus said, that's not what I'm talking about. Nicodemus, I'm talking about a different kind of birth, a different kind of way, a different kind of understanding. And you are to be born from above. You are to be born from God. You are going to be born again in a different way. And as he's explaining that to Nicodemus, Nicodemus says, I don't understand how all this is. I don't understand what's going on. Verse 16, he says, Nicodemus, you just need to understand this. That God... So loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever it is believes in him won't have to perish, but will have eternal life. And in one sentence, in 125 characters, in 25 words, Jesus radically proclaims the truth of the gospel. And here's what I want to do today. I just want to break down that verse. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. And this is going to be really difficult for you. I want you to imagine that you're hearing that verse for the first time. Now, for some of you, you have heard it innumerable times. So I want you to imagine this is something fresh, something new, that you're sitting there and you've gotten a personal letter from John where he's recounting the story. You're, you're sitting in that room with Jesus and Nicodemus and you hear this story and you hear these words for the first time and let them wash over you with the magnitude of what they say. The first phrase says, for God so loved the world. You say, we know that. God loves people. He loves me. He loves you. But that's not what it says. What does it say God loves? The world. You're like, well, are you going to change everything here? Are you talking about the earth? Now, is that what he's talking about? The physical earth? Like, does that mean we're to become tree-hugging environmentalists because God loves the world? Well, maybe there's a room for that. We could have discussion about that, but it's not from this verse, all right? What he means here is not the physical earth. What he means is the system of humanity that has set itself against God. In fact, the word world is used by John on several occasions. And it means those people who don't believe. It means the system of humanity that has consciously walked away from God. It means sinners. It means people that are doing their own thing. It means people who don't love him back. It means people that take him for granted, that avoid him, that don't care about him or his commandments. It's people that don't go to church because they were wasted from partying too much on Saturday night. It's people that don't go to church because 
because they think they got better things to do with their time on Sunday morning. God loves the people who have set themselves directly against him. John could have said people. God, John could have said his chosen ones. But that's not what he said. He said God loves this system of being that automatically gives us all a direction to walk away from our creator. That's what he loves. And you say, well, how does that kind of go with the rest of Scripture? Because Scripture makes it very clear that God hates sin. And even in Scripture, God judges sinners. And it is true that if you look from Genesis through Revelation, God hates sin and God judges sinners. He removes Adam and Eve from the garden. He causes Cain to wander the earth because of his sin. He floods the entire world because of the sin of the people. He destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Time after time, he brings destruction upon the people of Israel because of their sin and walking away from him. How can God be so angry at the people and say he loves them at the same time? My simple answer to that is. If we're honest, every one of us in this room has been passionately in love or passionately loved people and been angry with them at the same time. Right? Any of you parents ever loved your children more than you could ever imagine and at the same moment be completely angry with the choices that they're making? Let me see your hands. I just need some support this morning from the congregation. You been there? Any of you teenagers ever loved your parents and be very angry at the decisions they're making? Any of you ever been passionately in love with your spouse and completely angry at them at the same time? God looks at us and he looks at the world because let's not let's not try to sugarcoat this. When he says the world, people that are Opposed to him, people that have walked away from him, people that have chosen not to follow him. You know who that is? It's us. It's not them. It's us. God looks at us and he looks at the world and he passionately loves us. But he is angry about the choices we have made to walk away from him. Doesn't diminish the love he has for us in the least. In fact... It shows the evidence of the love he has. In Hebrews it says, those whom God loves, he disciplines, chastens, corrects. And the amazing thing about this passage of scripture, when it looks down, it says, God loved the world and he looked at those who had set themselves against him. And instead of writing them off, instead of saying, I'm done. And instead of saying, I'm washing my hands clean, I'm going to recreate again. He promised not to do that with Noah. He looks down and he says, instead of just condemning and judging, I'm going to provide a way. In fact, he decides to do something about it. Now, let's think for a minute who we're talking about. We're talking about the creator of the universe, the most powerful being that has ever or will ever exist. The one that has the capacity to do absolutely anything that he wants to do in line with his character, which is who he is. 
he would have been completely in his right as a God of justice and perfection and holiness to do away with us and never offer us any kind of way back to him. But the next phrase says that he loved us so much that he gave. You ever been in a situation where you felt wronged or you felt like something needed to be done and you've appealed to people and nothing happens? Think about this week. Um, a trip I went on several months ago. Uh, next week, uh, Susan and I are going to the Southern Baptist Convention. We're excited about that. It's near Washington. And I was thinking about the only other time I've been to Washington in my life. I've only been in the Washington airport. And that was because uh, a few years ago, when we went to Brazil, on our way back, it had been the longest trip I think we had taken. I think it was like 12, or 14, 12 13, 14 days, somewhere in there. So we were coming back, and I'd left Susan with young children, um, and they had um, tested her patience. And Susan was on the countdown to the hour. I was as well. I was ready to be home. I wanted to see my kids. I miss them. I miss Susan deeply. I wanted to see her. So we fly back and we fly to, those of you that have been on Brazil know this trip, you fly from Sao Paulo to Miami, and in Miami we had a short window to make our flight, and we got delayed a little bit in Sao Paulo, we got turbulence in the air, we didn't land quite on time, but everything still seemed to be fine, we go down there, we get everything we need to get, um, and the family has some luggage that's not quite coming out very quickly. And so I stay behind, make sure everybody gets through. And me and the family, the Brooks family, we, we get their luggage and we move on. And we go get in line. And the security checkpoint has about 8,913 people in it. Now that's an exaggeration by about four. All right. And we're standing there and the guy goes, hey, listen, y'all need to get through. Y'all need to go to this other line. So we go to the other line and we get down to that line and there are just as many people in that other line. And we've lost our place in the line we have. And we get through the security and we get there and we run. And, and when I say we run, I mean we run to make that flight. And we get there. Those of you that, that have been know this. Those of you that, ha that haven't, don't. we fly from Miami to um, Nashville in what we call the pencil plane. And it's one of those little bitty planes at the end of the runway of the last terminal that you have to run to get to. And you have to get on a bus that drives you out to walk up the steps to get on it. And so we make it. The Brooks and myself make it to the ticket counter. And we look at the lady and we say, we're here. We're here. We got it. We're ready. And she goes, oh, you've missed your flight. And I look to my right and there is the bus. I see our people on the bus. And I said, we haven't missed the flight. There's the bus. She goes, oh, but the doors have been closed. Open them. <laughs> she says that that's against federal regulation. I said, this is not an airplane door. This is a it's a you know, like if I step over there, it may automatically open. She said, sir, you've missed your flight. I was like, can you just not let us on? And so then I begin the sob story. You know, listen, I've been gone for like a week and a half. My family's waiting on me. If I don't make this plane, I'm going to miss them. I have been flying literally for the last 22 hours. All I have left is a two hour flight on that plane that is not going to take off for another 20 minutes. If you would open that door for like 30 seconds, I will sprint through it, climb on the side of the bus to get there. And I said, is there somebody you can call? She said, no, it's done. 
So I spent about six extra hours in the Miami airport, flew to Washington, D.C., got here, flew back here, got to Nashville. Of course, there's a thunderstorm. We had a circle for a minute and then we landed. But I just wanted somebody in a position of power that could do something about it. He gave his only son. The being in ultimate position of power did not stand by and let an injustice stand. He gave. And he didn't just give something. I mean, you have to remember, he has everything that has ever been created at his disposal to use to make this right. And he chooses his absolute best. His only Son, for the enemies that had purposely and consciously rejected him. I read this this week, and I want to share it with you. God sent his only son for the poor and the rich. For men and women, boys and girls. For the older person using a walker to shuffle down the sidewalk and the newborn dozing in her mother's arm. He sent his son for the strong and the healthy, for the weak, the sick, the abandoned, the broken, for the educated and the illiterate. He sent his son for people of every group, black, white, brown, the self-disciplined, the addict. He loves the high and mighty. He sent for the low and powerless and the oppressed. God sent his son for liars, thieves, hustlers, men on the make, adulterers, pimps, prostitutes, rapists, pedophiles, sexual predators, and the victims of sexual predators. God sent his son for murderers, gangbangers, those who abort babies and those who have babies aborted, for helpless victims, for transvestites and homosexuals, for the greedy, the lazy, the good for nothing, the employed, the unemployed, the homeless, deadbeat dads, divorced, happily married, miserably married, single widowed. He sent his son for those who bow down to idols and those who bow down to sports teams. Those who are addicted to pornography for atheists, Muslims, Hindus and Buddhists, for those who take his name in vain. God loves the world. And sent his son. For his enemies. For those who hate him. For the gentle soul that wouldn't swat a fly, and for the selfish, mean, proud, vicious person. He loves them all. He loves me, and He loves you. And He gave. And all He requires from us is to believe. My favorite word in this whole passage, this whole verse probably comes in that next phrase when it says that whoever believes in him. And it's the word whoever. Do you know what whoever means? Whoever is what it means. All right. Anyone. If I say to you, hey, listen, we're having a cookout tonight at my house. We're not, by the way. Just to clarify. But if I said to you, we're having a cookout at my house tonight, whoever wants to come can come. Does that mean only a few of you can come? No. Not unless I went downstairs and told Susan and she said, you said what? No, it means whoever. 
Whoever wants to come, come. And what God says is he loves the world, those enemies, those that have walked away, those that have turned their back. And he loves enough that he has sent the very best that he has, his one and only son. And that whoever. What I love about this passage is it doesn't say there are a select few or a chosen race. He says that whoever responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ by believing in him is welcome into his family, is welcome into his grace, is welcome into his mercy, no matter or what you've done or where you're from or who you are, if you will believe in what he has done, you can be set free. Now, the key there is the word believe. Because believe doesn't just mean, well, oh, I can quote that verse. If just quoting this verse was enough, there would be billions of people saved. And we'd be making cards today telling them, just take this somewhere and have somebody memorize it. That's not what it means. Belief here and in the book of John means that you have such faith, such trust that you are sure that it is true so much that you are going to stake your life and reputation and everything you are on the truth of that claim. It means that your life will be forever radically changed by a commitment to the truth of Jesus Christ. Not should be, not might be, not could be, is changed. And so belief is not just, well, I said a prayer once. If it was just saying a prayer, we would have everybody say the same prayer. It's not just saying a prayer. What it involves is actual change of life because Jesus Christ, creator of the universe, God's only son who died in our place and saved us from our sins through his death and resurrection has come to abide in you and is changing you from the inside out into the person he created you to be. There is life transformation because of the fact that you believe in him. Somebody says it shouldn't be that simple or that complex, and it is both. It's the simplest response to anything. Would you accept? And you say, yes, I believe. But it shows itself in a lifetime of commitment. And here's why it all matters. I mean, the reason people love John 3.16 is because it answers life's biggest questions. Is there a God? Yes. Does he care? Yes. Will he do something to reach out to me? Yes. What do I have to do in response? Believe. And what is the reward? And he tells us at the end. You shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's the good part of this whole thing. Is the salvation that comes in him. And the forever nature of it. Last night, some of you saw the picture on Instagram. Jeff and I were able to go to the Opry. We were at the Opry for kind of a strange reason. Last night at the Opry, David Crowder was making his debut. And David Crowder writes just phenomenal worship music. If you were, Jeff and I were talking about this on the way and back. If you were just to ask me kind of the most influential albums, music on my spiritual walk in the last ten years, two or three of them would be David Crowder albums. Just an amazing guy being used by God. And because his new album is almost entirely bluegrass... He got invited to be at the Opry. He closed the Opry last night. He was the last kind of announced act. Ricky Skaggs was the host and for his segment. And Ricky 
came out and introduced, you know, and did his thing. And then Ricky had his family out, his wife's family, actually the wives, and they sang. And then Ricky introduces David Crowder, and David Crowder comes out and sings. The first song he sang, he said, I'm going to sing the song that may have been sung more than any other song in the history of the Opry. And it was written by a guy named Hank Williams Sr. So he said, I saw the light. All right. Now, here's what's interesting. If you were here last week for our combined service, we actually did that song and we did it the way David Crowder did it last night because we got it from David Crowder's arrangement. And so he sang. And here's what I thought was interesting. He, he, in the midst of his version, he twisted suddenly that he is singing from uh, I saw the light to I'll fly away. Now, if you know just good old fashioned bluegrass gospel music, that's like the two top standards. Where Jeff and I were sitting, we were actually in the, we were backstage and we were sitting on the pews that were behind the people that were playing. And as we're sitting there watching, when he went into I'll Fly Away, you suddenly, now people were into I Saw the Light. They were happy with that. But when he went to I'll Fly Away, I mean, the foot stomping and the hand clapping and the singing just erupted. Because people like to sing about that stuff. You know why we like to sing about that stuff? Because we don't like the alternative. All right? Nobody likes the alternative. They may not believe in it, but they don't like it if they do. And this is what I thought was interesting. Crowder then went into a song that he said from the stage. This is a song of invitation. And it is. It's on his new album. And it's phenomenal. And in that moment, in the Grand Ole Opry, there was a divine presence that took over that place. I looked over into the wings and Ricky Skaggs was standing over there. Ricky Skaggs, who lives in Hendersonville area. Ricky Skaggs has been to a couple of Opry shows. Was my guess. And I looked over there. The first thing I saw is he looked at some. He looked at his father-in-law who was sitting there and just went, "Wow, unbelievable." And then I looked back over there as the song was finishing, and I could see. A tear coming down his, eye, down his face. He walked out to the stage and he grabbed David Crowder. And here he is on the Opry stage with David Crowder. And he is crying out of both eyes. You can, I mean, I got on the huge screen behind, tears streaming down. And he said, David, your music is filled with joy. He said, and our world needs joy more now than it has ever seemed to need it. And he told him, and I won't go into the whole thing, he told me about this vision he had while David was singing of youth being set free from stuff, of people being set free from addiction and all of this stuff. He said, but David, what encourages me, and this is on the Opry stage here, people come in here to, you know, because they just visit Nashville, everybody goes to the Opry, we got 50th anniversaries, we got people out there, you know, just there. And Ricky Skaggs looks at me and says, the thing that encourages me, David, is you remind people of the truth, that there is no joy in life outside of Jesus Christ. And then they cut to commercial. But they really did. But he's like, we have to go to commercial, but I want you to understand that. When I got up this morning, I was looking at this passage of Scripture. I thought, there is nothing in life that brings me more joy than this verse. Because no matter what may come in my life, and there is some stuff that is going to come in your life. Amen? 
no matter what comes in our lives, we can be assured that because of Jesus and His love, and because of the Father's love for us and His sending of Jesus, we can be assured that we have eternal life in Him. But the verse also reminds us that for those that don't believe, the end result is perishing. Eternity separated from Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Whoever believes, not just agrees, but stakes their life, their reputation, everything are on the truth of this. Of who Jesus is. They won't perish. They'll have life eternal. So here's my simple question to you today. Do you believe? Not did you say a prayer, not did you walk an aisle, not did you in VBS sometime. Now, did you in VBS sometimes say ABCs or a list of things that the teacher read out? Not that you, when you were on a youth trip somewhere to a camp, when everybody else went front, you went front. I'm saying, have you staked your life, your reputation, all that you are on the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done? Because that's what's required for eternal life. Let's pray together.